You're listening to MHD Off The Record. On this episode, we speak with Ayuko Babu. Ayuko Babu is the co-founder and executive director of the Pan-African Film Festival and the international cultural, political, and legal consultant specializing in Pan-African affairs. He has been the executive director of the Pan-African Film and Arts Festival since its establishment in 1992. From 2016 to 2018, Mr. Babu served on the California Film Commission. In addition to the Pan-African Film Festival, Mr. Babu currently serves as a permanent member of the jury of the annual Africa Movie Academy Awards, headquartered in Lagos, Nigeria. Africa Movie Academy Awards is the world's largest Pan-African Film Awards event, covering the continent of Africa and its worldwide diaspora. Enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody. We're on uh, MHD Off the Record. We've got an exciting guest today. Uh, one of our community institutions, community treasures, uh, the founder of the engine, the energy, the visionary behind the world-famous Pan-African Film Festival, most important black film festival held anywhere uh, on planet Earth. And it happens right here in the 8th District in, in South LA, in the Crenshaw District and has been going on for decades now. You know, Babu, the founder, kind of stands behind the films and behind the work of the artists. It really works as a hype man for the artists when they come to town to show their work. And uh, folks should know the Pan-African Film Festival has uh, African film thinkers from the U.S., of course, uh, folks from the big studios, of course, but also, you know, you'll see a small film from Santiago de Cuba or Liberia or Japan. Uh, there are African people all over the world and there are African people making art all over the world. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, it's good to be here. To uh, Brother Babu. And I want to start off with your history because not a lot of people know your history and I'm just learning a little bit of it. How do you uh, get into cultural uh, culture? And, and um, I, I assume you, I believe that you were a part of the revolutionary cultural mo- black cultural movement in the 60s and 70s yeah uh, but talk to me talk to us about how you arrived at all that well okay I was in uh, the Black Panther Party mm-hmm. both the Black Panther political party mm-hmm. there were three parties which people like don't really know Black Panther of Northern California with Ed Bullens Black Panther Party was self-defense with Bobby and Huey and then the Black Panther political party here in Los Angeles with mm-hmm. John Floyd yes and um we all came out of the out of the '60s. You know, I'm, a, I'm a '60s person, and what I mean by that is that our consciousness and our experience was shaped by starting in 1955 with Dr. King and the bus boycott in Montgomery. Ends Vietnam after Vietnam, Muhammad Ali, that whole thing. So I was part of that whole experience. So I was lucky to raise in that historical yeah. moment. Yeah. My I was my parents came out of the Great Depression. My mother was a beautician, and uh, she was raised in the cotton fields in Texas. Hmm. Uh, born in San Antonio, her mother was put in an insane asylum uh, sometime uh, in the twenties, and they never saw her again. Wow! That's classic. Wow. It's classic. And uh, she was picking cotton. She was part of the that uh, reconstruction. She she's, she's born in 1912, my father's born in 1909, so they're 19th century people. And uh, being 19th century people, uh, they started out in the cotton fields. My father left the cotton fields when he was 12 years old. I am actually the second generation. My grandfather was, was an enslaved person. Hmm. You know, what I was here about that 
that yeah. long distance. Yeah, like it was long. It was really right here. My yeah. grandfather was yeah. a slave person. And he was uh, 14, 15, something like that, in 1865. And uh, independence came, freedom came, and then he was forced to be a sharecropper. That sharecropping, that reconstruction, he's one of those people that was a sharecropper his whole life. Hmm. We think that, uh, from what we understand, he came from, uh, from Haiti huh. into Louisiana, and then sold from Louisiana to the people in Texas where my father was born. So he came after the Haitian Revolution? Yeah, probably during that period. After the Haitian Revolution, but during that period, black folks were going to New Orleans, people were taken, so we're not clear if he got bought as an enslaved person, if he came and got, somehow he got caught again into slavery. And um, he, all his life, as my father told me, he always had a difference to white folks. When they would come down the street, he would get off the side of the street and bow their head and put a Captains, you know, that kind of thing. And all he saw was, was uh, he had 20 children. Wow. And my grandfather's one of those children. And the reason for 20 children, 19th century, you had a lot of kids so you could have some people to work and survive and who could take care of, you know, that he's really one of those people who produced 20 children. My father's one of them. And um, he thought that it ended all, that nothing could happen, but sharecropping. My father and my mother in two separate families both refused to continue to pick cotton at 12 years old. There's a new book on uh, the economics of cotton. They increased cotton production from the 18th century to the 19th century by from 300% to 400%. That they worked them like slaves, beyond slavery to be able to make that cotton, because cotton was a decisive, cotton was like oil in the 18th, 19th, early 20th century. Yeah. That shaped my direction, that shaped my experience, hearing my father talk about that. He left at uh, 12 years old. Last fight he had with his father was over staying on the plantation of leaving. He left and became a, went through a whole lot of different things. He ultimately became a chef at the Hilton Hotels chain across the country and learn that whole whole experience. So all that shaped me, how I got to Wyoming. Wyoming, yeah. If you remember Oprah Winfrey. Our brother Kanye is there. You might need to go back and help out. A lot of brothers go up to Cheyenne, up there and look around. If you remember when Oprah went to trial about arguing about hamburgers, if you remember that story. Yeah, when she talked about it. And she went to trial in Amarillo, Texas, where my father was went to when he left the cotton fields. And in Amarillo, he started being a bellhop, a porter, hustling, and also gambling. And um, he started working at the Amarillo Hotel, which is a hotel. Amarillo is the headquarters of the Agricultural Cattlemen's Association of America. Mm. That's why they had a trial there. And the hotel that he worked at, the Amarillo Hotel, was that hotel. Now, I didn't know that at the time. You know, we learned, you know, this is hindsight, but it shapes what, what happened. So um, they decided to bring charges against her in Amarillo because that's their headquarters. My father, uh, all the rich cattlemen in that whole, from Texas, the whole thing, and, and the, the Chisholm, you heard the Chisholm Trail, the cowboy thing. The Chisholm Trail starts in Texas. Mm-hmm. Fort Worth goes through Amarillo goes up to Denver, 
Cheyenne, and then from Cheyenne goes over to Omaha, the Omaha Steaks you see on television today. Yeah. Then into Chicago, to the slaughterhouses. That's the trail. Into the distribution, yeah. Yeah. Now, my father was a bellhop hustling in that hotel and uh, still trying to figure out where to go, you know, what's happening. And the brother said, well, you know, you might make a, a good little cook. And he um, said, well, I'll try a little cooking, you know. And he started cooking and got into it and so forth and so on, became a very famous cook on that trail. And um, his reputation spread up to Cheyenne. And he was the great migration, so he was trying to decide to leave Texas. So he decided, first he went to Utah to look around, hmm. then went to Detroit to look around, and didn't want to work in the factories. And uh, finally, he got back to Amarillo, and there was a, uh, they were looking for a cooks up in Cheyenne. His name was spread up that trail to Cheyenne, which is the capital of Wyoming. And uh, he went up to Cheyenne and decided, I'm going to stay in Cheyenne. Wow. And Cheyenne, the reason why Cheyenne was significant at that point, it was a army base in, 19, in the 40s, World War II. If you read Sammy Davis's uh, autobiography, he talks about being stationed in Cheyenne in the 1940s and all the horrible racism and so forth. Then in the 50s, when we got there, uh, it had been turned into an Air Force base, which was a mustering in base for all, all Air Force people. Lackland in, in Texas, Cheyenne, 90,000 troops came through there every six, seven, eight weeks. Wow. As a result of that experience, it was horrible. But what it did, it woke us up because we were watching, first, if you're in a small town, you're watching other black folks in the big cities and what's going on, you're reading Jet. You're reading so Cheyenne's small town at this point? 50,000, still, 50, oh, still, still, still 50,000, still 50,000. It's also the capital of the state. And um, we were watching all of these, these people pushing for integration. We didn't know that, that uh, Thurgood was saying, okay, we're gonna push for integration, but we're gonna also force them to improve the black schools. We just mm -hmm. saw them mm -hmm. trying to get to where we were in Cheyenne. Now there was only a thousand- Were there black schools in Cheyenne? No, oh, okay. this, this is a real interesting thing, how I got here, yeah. and it's long, but since you asked it. <laughs> so what happens is that there's only a thousand black folks in Cheyenne and a thousand throughout the state. Wow. And the state, is made up of two or three different generations. There were, at the time I lived there in the 50s, there were still black cowboys from the old days of the 19th century were on working those ranches and so forth and so on. Then they'd come down to Cheyenne with black folks in the summertime and hang out. You know, I got a chance to see some of these people. Amarillo was the same, same, same situation. Cowboys, if you read Duke Ellington's book, um, there was a famous cowboy in Amarillo named Bone Hooks. Called him Bone because he had a hook on his hand, his hand had been broken, and he was one of the leaders of, the, of, Cheyenne, of, of Amarillo. My parents were very active in Amarillo. They were in the NWCP. Uh, my mother came under the influence of Booker T, so they were owning their own black business, cooking, cutting, doing hair, and that kind of thing. Now what's interesting is this. My mother never discussed what happened to her between the time she was seven and she left the cotton field in 17. In Texas, horror, never discussed it. Her narrative began at 17 when she meets Mrs. Edgar, who was a direct graduate of Tuskegee. And she came to Texas to teach black women how to do hair and form your own business, the exact Booker T position. So I'm a product of Booker T 
And then of course my father was watching that and he's cooking. So they they going to they got trades and tried to move in that direction. Now what happens is that we get up to Cheyenne and we How old are, are you when you get to Cheyenne? Eight. Third grade. Third grade. Yeah, eight. Now, we get there and it's completely integrated. But understand what that means. There's no black schools, there's no black anything. There's no black water fountains. Yeah, you know, they can, can't afford any, it. Yeah, they can't, enough, yeah, can't afford it. Enough black people. Right, not enough black folks. Also, Cheyenne was the political capital. There's a, there's a struggle in Wyoming. If you know Dick Cheney, mm-hmm. he's from Wyoming. Mm-hmm. I saw Dick Cheney play football when I was in seventh grade. He was a senior at Casper. Wow. And uh, I saw him play football. I said, is that the same guy that I saw in high school? I mean, in, in seventh grade. Turns out to be the same person. He was uh, picked up by Wildcat. In Wyoming, there's coal, there's gold, there's agriculture, there is all of the raw resources. It's like, it's like, had we understood what I've understood going to Africa, it's like Africa in, inside the United States. Yeah. That's where all the resources are and all the hustlers are there. So when we started experiencing that, we started to say, well, integration's not that cool. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we, we said, so we already have right, that. right. We, we, we're sitting in, 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 cause we didn't, we weren't developed enough to know that, that, uh, they were going to have another plan. So let's push them and then improve the black schools. Mm-hmm. We're starting to see a very peculiar thing that white folks just think that you, their little boy, they just think that you're just supposed to do what they think. You're supposed to, you know, do you have another thought in your world, in your life, or, you know, just, they just assume that they run the world, they're in charge of the world, and that you're part of it, so come on and do what we want you to do. That's a profound thing to gradually understand that, that you are irrelevant, insignificant, except for what they think about. Now, how that affected us, we began to get deep into the culture deep into the music, deep into looking for, you know, uh, we go down to Denver, we see Ray Charles, that kind of thing, looking for that direction, looking for that understanding, because that was the spirit touching us. Here's what, what shaped me profoundly. I was selling Jet Magazine, Tan Magazine, I don't know if anybody knows Tan Magazine, uh, yeah. uh, Jive, Hit Magazine, right. Yeah. We sell, I was selling all those magazines, one, to see what's going on in the black world. Mm-hmm. From time to time, Chicago Defender would get a couple of those, sell those. And um, trying to keep up my reading jet every week, not only am I reading the glamour and the horror in jet, they used to have people got killed. There was a brother who got killed, his head got cut off. He went and had a drink in, in Chicago while his head, the woman's head was sitting out on the uh, sidewalk, you know, looking at all this, you know from a distance. At the same time, I was reading uh, Simeon Booker's, he had, there was always, Mr. Johnson always had some politics. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. So there was a yellow page in the jet that Simeon, Simeon Booker would keep up all the information we read jet. We read that religiously. Then he'd always have an editorial in Ebony that gave some information. Huh. But it's interesting, cause when we got to LA, a lot of people didn't know that he had an editorial every week, every month in Ebony they gave all the analysis of Brown versus Board of Education, et cetera. And then Simeon Booker had a politics, political discussion inside about uh, Dawson and Chicago. And so, so I was reading all that. 
trying to keep up to what's happening. Now, Cheyenne was like this. They had decided, if you know football or basketball, they were getting beat. White University of Wyoming, University of Colorado, all these people. This is like in the 50s, 60s, early 60s. They're getting beat by UCLA, USC, NYU, New York, uh, St. John's. All the brothers are wearing them out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we could never figure out how why these brothers could do all that. We didn't realize we got out here, and so there was summertime all the time, and it's a huge population here, so mm -hmm. they didn't have snow to deal with. So as at one point, the leadership in Wyoming said, we got to get some black players at the University of Wyoming, football, basketball. And they never have any local people who are able to play on that level. Well, I was one of the kids to get played because we were playing against the brothers in the Air Force. Mm. And so brothers from New York coming, brothers from L.A. coming. You know, so I mean, we playing all the baddest brothers in the country. Because what kids do when they go in the Air Force, they got four years to do some reading, some thinking, to figure out where they're going with their life and play ball and the whole thing. So we got a chance to not only play against some of the top ball players in the country every six weeks, but we also got a chance to hear John Coltrane, mm. brother played train, brother played, uh, there was a brother named Ivory Sestro in the service. He'd come over to my house and play train all the time and start crying. This mm. is like 55, 56. Uh, Art Blakely, uh, Randy Weston, uh, Miles Davis, you know, we heard all that music. We also used to see a brother who was in the service, he used to have a grand piano in our neighborhood, and he in the picture window would practice every day, and it had this beautiful music coming out of his, out of his house, and we just stood, you know, like little kids and listened mm -hmm. to this brother play. And years later, this is if this was happening in Cheyenne, it's like a double sword. Years later, I get to L.A., and I said, I wonder that's the same brother that I saw in Cheyenne because his name was Tapscott. Wow. Horace Tapscott. Wow. So I... Horace Tapscott, he was from Cheyenne? No, or he, he was, was just a station there in the Air Force. Okay. So finally one day at one of the barbecue places, I ran into some... But look, were you in Cheyenne in the 50s? Yeah, man, I was in the Cheyenne for four years. Wow. He did his whole service in Cheyenne and played every day. So you remember the kids used to step, stop and look and see... So yeah, I used to see you guys standing out in that place so y'all could hear, you know, it's cool. And he said, um, he said, well, who's your parents? I said, well, my mother's Lottie Ashley. He says, Lottie Ashley. He said, oh, man, that was my wife's beautician. Wow. The whole four years. Wow. He said, well, who was your dad? I said, M.C. Ashley cooked at the hotel. He said, yeah, Ashley and Cookie ran a gambling house. <laughs> so, you know, it's, I said, wow. So that kind of exposure yeah. was happening at the same time. Now... They have a plan. So they got a kid, finally, a local kid that can really play. And he's black, too. So they get, we're going to integrate and black. And he shows some leadership potential. So if you if you notice sometime, small towns will have some black person, city councilman or lieutenant governor or something. Mm -hmm. You see that sometimes. Mm -hmm. some, some alderman or something. Yeah, yeah. some Joplin, Missouri. Mm, yeah. Well, they had that program for me. Ah, that's what they had planned to do. I see. Which I didn't know. I was gradually trying to figure it out. Now, here's what happens. There's a family in Rock Springs, Wyoming, who are coal miners. They came from West Virginia. Their son was an All-American basketball player from Rock Springs in 1960. 
And I watched him play incredible. They weren't trying to recruit him. They were trying to recruit me. And I said, you know, I'm trying to understand this brother yeah. is incredible. I can play, but this brother was incredible. Right. The difference was my father was working at the at the, uh, at the hotel. Plains Hotel, yeah. which was a hotel that all of the uh, folks, rich white folks would, like, they downtown, all the restaurants down there. Yeah. They all, so they knew my father. It's and like they the knew more or something. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And they um, assessed him. And then my mother had was in the beauty shop. And so there was black folks that were stable, working, and could get along with white folks, so forth and so on, but remain independent and not be completely docile to white, you know, that kind of thing. They were afraid of the that young brother come out of the uh, coal fields in, in West Virginia. They were too underdeveloped. They make those kind of decisions. What does that mean, underdeveloped? That they could not navigate as well as my father and mother could navigate or I could navigate white society. Got it. They could figure out, my father could figure out a little bit more than a brother working in the, in the mind. It's like uh, Chief Keith versus Kendrick Lamar. Exactly. Got it. Exactly. Got it. So, so that, that kind of alarmed me, you know, what's, why they're not recruiting him. Then there was another brother, an Indian brother named uh, Shannon Brown. And if you ever decide to look it up, uh, they did a story on Shannon Brown in 1960 in Sports Illustrated. He was like this great basketball player. But he was playing in the Indian League, C League, and he was as good as us in the A League. But because he was an Indian, he was C League. And we watching this brother, you know, doing the state champion, state games. And they wrote a story about him. And I kept up with him. I watched him in, in the tournament. Then I kept up with him. I saw this article come out in uh, Sports Illustrated. This brother was, I'm thinking he's going to come up to University of like, I'm going to go da-da-da. You know, nothing happened. He went up, he played that his sophomore year, quit, and went back up in the hills and heard sheep rest his life. Wow. So that blew my mind. There's something deeper here. Now, so they had this little plan, and I'll, I'll wrap it so we can get to the other thing. And the little plan was to convince me to go to the University of Wyoming and become one of these little people from Joplin, Missouri, city council person, you know, maybe lieutenant governor, that kind of thing. And um, they waited till my junior year, after the basketball season's over, and they have an annual banquet and present. They said, now listen, um, you've done very well this year as a junior, and we're going to give you a full four-year scholarship at the University of Wyoming Division One, And... Um, all paid for if you do well in your senior year and it's all taken care of and you know if you want to go to law school if you want to go to become a social worker if you want to come to school teacher you you're straight to this day i can't tell you exactly why i said this but it was the ancestor speaking to me i said i don't want to go to the university of wyoming because ain't no black girls there <laughs> it seems pretty about, obvious why you would say that <laughs> i'm talking about you know it's, it's black color we, we sick of wyoming right yeah we want to get away from this. And so they looked at me and said, is this, is this are you, have you lost your mind? I mean, <laughs> everybody's trying to go to the University of Wyoming, Colorado. And I insisted on that, insisted on that they find some other schools, but they wouldn't find any other schools. So they, they decided to do this. Well, we're going to force you to go to the University of Wyoming. This is what I mean, that they had a plan. Now, right. now the University of Wyoming is like this. There's only one university in Wyoming at that time. There's only one junior college up in Casper, there's no other junior college in Wyoming. Larry in Cheyenne is 50 miles away. So that's it for higher education. Now, they absolutely knew 
that was not going to turn that down and go to junior college down in Colorado. Then my mother and father said, school, you know, they didn't, you know, and then also, this is important, they never talked to my mother nor my father on any sister. They talked to a 15-year-old kid mm. and presented that. So finally, they gave me a scholarship at Otero Junior College. Have you heard that name recently in here in L.A.? Well, Darvin, uh, the coach Darvin of the league, okay. he went to Otero. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And what was happening was that Otero, that whole junior college system there, where brothers are coming out like Darwin and all these brothers coming out of Detroit, coming out of Chicago. When I got to Otero, all these bad brothers out of Detroit who had not had their grades up and so forth, they send to junior college. Then you go bring you on in. Uh, brother has all the tattoos out of Chicago. What's his name? Uh, Rodman? Rodman. He went to one of those junior oh, colleges. Really? Okay. Yeah, so okay. we ran into all these other brothers, yeah. right? And we realized that this was a whole, whole serious game of having you do what they want you to do. Mm -hmm. So that woke, woke me up and so forth and so on. And finally, after a year in, in, uh, in junior college in Colorado, I came out here and went to LA City College and played at LA City. Played with uh, Bernard. Bernard played football. Bernard Parks. Played football, oh. He's a football player. They won the national championship at LA City College. We were playing basketball. Then we get out here. We came out here not for the weather, not for and we came out to be around black folks. We were gonna go to LA or go to New York. Mm -hmm. And reason why we were so clear about that was because we had, the music was just incredible in the 50s. So uh, we had these kind of experiences. I'll give you an example of the experience. We go see, that's just an example. I don't like the term chitlin circuit. That's a, a, that's a, a bourgeois term that does not reflect the nature of what black folks were doing at the time. And I'll talk about Emmett Till about this same thing. Now, in the 50s, they were going to black clubs or black situations where they could create a situation with great musicians. In Duke Ellington's book, uh, Bone Hooks in Amarillo, uh, there was no places for Duke to play. They came to play for white folks. But then on Mondays, it, they had the top a theater in the in, in Amarillo, so the black community led by Bone Hooks, Duke points out, they ask black folks could they have that theater for Monday so black folks would go there. It's like the so we have in LA the Somerville and the Dunbar Hotel. Exactly, same, exactly. Same, the same whole situation. the same yeah. and once we got here we we really saw that. Yeah. Now what happens is that my mother and father were all part of that whole experience in Texas, the beauty shop, barber shop that whole uh, Negro League and that kind of thing. So they were all part. Because just like here on Crenshaw, you got the sisters who couldn't do hair, you got barbecue, you know, it's all happening. So they're part of the, that kind of energy. We got, when we got here, we were sort of attracted towards the, the black middle class because we saw the black middle class in terms of standards and so forth and so on. And so LA, on. LA had one of the largest black middle class of any city. Exactly. In the we, we didn't know that. Yeah. Know, we just, yeah. you know, we just saw it. Saw yeah. it, yeah. experienced it. Uh, all these uh, incredible sisters going to City College, you know. Mm -hmm. And was sister. LA segregated at the time? I mean, maybe not like by law. But no. Was we, it, or was it more like. Well, we. I can't really say we're so happy to be around black folks. We weren't even thinking about it. Yeah, we weren't even thinking about it. Yeah, we even it, think about it. it. All the hypnosis was happening okay. in, the, yeah. in the black community. So um, one of the examples of that was that back to China and get to LA is all connected, um, which means one reason why we wanted to go to the big cities. 
Uh, Ray Charles comes to L.A., comes to Cheyenne. They play in Denver and come up 100 miles and play in Cheyenne sometimes. And Ray Charles, if you know Ray Charles' music, if you know who played Hank Crawford, um, all the great musicians in the world was in Ray's band. His band was almost as good as Duke Ellington's band. I don't know if you know that, but you go back and listen to the music. And um, we sat in there, my father got dressed, and that's what I said, I like the children, sir, because black folks would go to my mother's beauty shop, get their clothes done, get their hair straight, get straight. If they had chitlins, it was the high-end chitlins in New York. That's what they called T-Bone Walker, T-Bone Steak. I mean, it was it was uptown. It was happening. It was spirit, right? Sometimes there wasn't no chitlins. You know, they, they doing it. So um, Ray comes to Cheyenne, and he's singing songs like, and how it affected me. You probably heard, have you ever woke up in the morning about the wake of day and reach over and touch where your baby used to lay? <laughs> when you hear somebody say something like that, <laughs> see, then you reach over, then you put on your cry, which is the African concept. You put on your cry. You cry so hard, you get the blues to the neighbor next door. Say, Good God, man. <laughs> I mean, we saw this man do this. And then Hank Crawford, is, you know, they didn't tore up the song, and the music is incredible, right? And so we just stand there enjoying this, enjoying our culture. I want to be there. I want to be right, right there. And we look over and see a brother standing in the back that's not from Cheyenne. And so he must be with the band, right? So at halftime, we go talk to but you from with Ray, yeah. Well, what band? What what uh, you know? instrument do you play, right? And uh, he was a dignified brother, very hip brother, you know. He said, "I don't play. I don't play any instrument." He said, "I'm Ray's pilot." This is '57. Wow. His pilot. Pilot. He flies his plane. I'm Ray's pilot. Ray Charles had a plane. <laughs> I said, well, "Y'all, here, fifty years later, y'all say." So, I'm like, I say, wow, I say, Ray, Ray's got a plane? And he said, yes, we were here in, in Cheyenne. He said, I'm a, I'm a Tuskegee Airman, and wife wouldn't give me a job. Ray gave me a job to fly. Hmm. Saying James Brown got a plane. He's flying, another friend of my party is flying James. I said, you can, we all said, Wait, where's the plane? He's out there at the airport. We all went out to the airport to see the plane. Now, that told me who we were, what we could do and the power and the energy and so forth and so on. You know, honest, like you, you're saying so many things. I don't think you realize how much you're saying. I told you it's like a master it's, class every time. We only right. ask one question. We, right. We, he literally asks one question. And yeah. it's like, I have so many questions I want to ask because you literally touched on, I mean, you started All off of with, it. even with like Thurgood Marshall. And with right. Because I didn't want to get to that, right? But right. We, you hit so many points, even around like school integration and what we were even what we have right. been taught to believe exactly. what school integration is about versus what the movement it. was, what he was really trying to right. do. Because exactly. I, I was, for, for example, I was always taught that the answer was school integration. Exactly. It was the goal was to, you know to sit next to a white That's child. That's what we thought. And the goal was actually to get funding for That's black right. schools. Something that I learned a little bit later exactly. in my life. Because they would not give them the each, exactly. money. Exactly. You know, there, there's a great uh, film uh, that you all played at the film festival that a friend of mine worked on called um call me polly murray yes uh, yes yeah, yes yeah yes, about yes. the woman who's a lawyer who's a student at howard actually to to babu's point yeah when thurgood marshall was going to the supreme court to argue against brown versus board of education you know it's separate but equal on separate and equal well he was going to argue unequal right he was saying 
separate and equal is fine, but this is not equal, so make right. it equal. And Incredible lady. this woman says, you're going to lose on the equal. Right. The problem is the separate. The Constitution doesn't allow for separate. And so they say, you know, you're a girl. You don't know what you're talking about. You know, that's nice. Go sit down. And they get halfway through the case. And Thurgood Marshall says, we're losing. Like, yeah. we're not going to win this. And so he says, what's, you know, what are our other options? And so he pulls her, they pull her paper out and they say, that's okay, right. we're going to argue separate. And they argue separate. And that's the, what the Supreme Court rules on. Wow. The, the, oh, the yeah. law doesn't recognize yeah. separate. Like yeah. the law does not give the government right. the right to separate people based on gender or race exactly. or anything else. Religion. So that's what happened. That that's what happened. Yeah. In that and that's, yeah. that's, yeah. that's why that's we have, blowing. that's why we have the Pan-African Film Festival to right. show those kind of films to folks to get yeah. that understanding. But we needed that understanding. So let's talk about the Pan-African Okay, film. Hold, yes. on, hold on one second. Let okay. me just say this. Yeah, because you got to hype so, up the festival. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so what happens is that we go out and see the plane and we know absolutely the future's there in the big cities, future's yeah. in Africa, future's here, you know. And so we were compelled to either come this way. The other same thing with, with Emmett Till. I'm only two years younger than Emmett Till, if I remember correctly. And um, one day I go to pick up the magazines, which were incredible. I open up the Jet magazine, there's Emmett Till's face. And it was face big, twice, three times size of the head, which they never show. I have been mad at every single person who's made films about Emmett Till, even with Till, it does not show the horror of the face. It was the horror of the face that, that grabbed us. Mm -hmm. That's what grabbed us. And um, I went to the barbershop and just stunned. And everybody in the barbershop, and this is also, I've talked to a lot of people around the country, Angela, Kwame Toure, we all, our generation was, we all knew. I knew I was the, uh, dead. Emmett Till was the Trayvon Martin. Right, of, Trayvon Martin, or, or the brother, uh, the other brother who, who they beat to death. Uh, uh, George Floyd. George Floyd. And uh, Latasha Harlan's the Latasha, yeah. generation. Yeah. And and um, so what happens, I'm in the barbershop, and this, they don't have the, again, right, this one, where we in film, pushing that, that whole question, is that they don't show the anger that the black community had towards the uncle who turned and let the white folks come and get him. You ain't seen not one film about that. No. Okay. The whole barbershop, and I'm going to use the language. Can I say blank, blank, whatever y'all yeah, okay. yeah, we, we can, we can. Blank, snip, yeah. snip. Everybody in the barbershop was like that. And I was like sitting in the bar listening, right? They said, this you know, motherfucking well, some shit like that happens. Then, you know, two things you got to do. You got to leave right then and there. And if you got anybody in your family that left the South behind it, they leave immediately. Right. You, leave you don't, night. you don't, yeah. you don't around and wait to da 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 you go then if you don't go then then you get your boys with your guns and shoot the motherfuckers and go down that's only that's that's the discussion and so they said oh this nigga done got paralyzed with fear he didn't leave and didn't pick up the gun let the white folks come there and do that and you know they're gonna come that was what the bad that was the anger about him also there was a discussion that well how did that woman let that boy get in that kind of situation. I saw the film again, I saw Till, and I saw, which nobody talks about this. When you send a kid south, you said and doesn't listen, the white folks will kill you. So you got to be really cool. You can't be, and, and she was acquiescent, trying to be accommodating and nice, and I said, look, I'm gonna send you that, but 
they will kill you. This is this is this is a serious thing. I mean, so I know mama that you know, they would they said, Well, you ain't going if you go if you go you got to understand you going down into hostile territory, they will kill you. It's the same situation in terms of black folks having two conversations about the police. Mm. One conversation is that and I'll use my example in terms of when I got to LA. I always when I talk to young people, I was a uh, Michael Brown. I was I was Michael Brown in 1962. But they killed they killed him down in uh, St. Louis. Now, when I got to LA in '62, I was stopped every day. They pulled guns on me. They threw me in, pulled me out the car. Just crazy. So I'm going to LA State, and I asked Brother LA. I said, Brother, what's wrong with the police in LA? I mean, what's happening here? And Brother, I never forget, he was, he was doodling, and he said, but let me talk to you, Brother. He said, man, you're not from LA. He said, I said, what do you mean? He said, the white folks fear you the most. You a big nigga. Now, I didn't know I was a big nigga till he said it because I've been 6'3 since I was 13. They thought I was gonna be seven foot. Then I'm playing ball with, you know, six, seven, you know, so I, I don't have a sense of that, Six right? 6'3 is not big for a basketball. Right, you're a yeah. guard. You're yeah. trying, you know. Yeah. And um, so he said, man, you're going to have to. He said, also, when you talk to white folks, you don't give them any kind of, not not flinching, but you don't give them a sense that you have any kind of difference to them. I said, we see, or just even your body. He said, because you've been used to talking to white folks in Wyoming and it's white folks. It's you know you don't you don't have no no you know they can't say so. What you gonna have to do is this in order to live. You had to convince white folks and the police that you are somebody that got something behind you, whether it's a lawyer, doctor, you know somebody. So mother, if you f with me, I can go get somebody that f with you. And they know. The brother told me this at Cal State. They know that if it comes between the police department and the individual policemen they're going to get sacrificed. So they back away from you. So you have to have a system. You have, as well as take control. Good evening, officer, can I help you? You know, I don't want to get shot here. What's happening? You have to, you got to create that. He told me that. That saved my life, okay? Because then I understood that process. Now, let me just say this. When that process started to happen, they stopped me and did all that for years and years and years. Then all of a sudden, good evening, sir, how you doing? <laughs> I mean, anything you've seen would happen to all this, that's that's happened to me. Well, what changed? I, I said, what's happening? Then I'm over here by the theater, and uh, brother, uh, black policeman, it's and pointing the north to Magic Johnson theaters or whatever. Right. It's now. And uh, we still call it Magic Johnson. Right. <laughs> and so I'm I'm going down down the street there, and we stop at the stoplight at King and Crenshaw. There's a black policeman and a, a Latino sister driving. She's a policewoman. He rolls around and says, brother, help me get this woman's telephone number, but I can't. <laughs> I say, <laughs> then the, they get the big white boys on the motorcycle, right? Which is intimidation. And they drive along and say, good evening, sir, how you doing? So I'm trying to, you know, deal with this. I look in the mirror, I got to go ahead. That's right, that's right, that's right. Finish. It totally changes. Changes thing, because totally you are no longer a threat. You're not young. And older black folks tend to forget that. But that, so anyway, that all led to the Pan-African Film Festival. And what, what that came from was that we were trying to figure out when, when we developed an analysis, capitalism, the Marxist analysis, when people say, as Baraka says, people say Marxism is, Marxism is the best analysis of capitalism in the world. 
They haven't figured out how to run socialism, but they didn't give an analysis of capitalism. So the question is white supremacy and capitalism. So we began to get, get came out and got a theory and understood those kind of things, trying to figure out what was happening, what to do. And um, what led to the, the festival was that we began to understand that this was a long struggle and where could we participate in that struggle and what could we do from my experiences and understanding. Well, that led to reading Crisis of Negro Intellectual by Harold Cruz. Wow. If you haven't read it, read Crisis. Yeah. We, had, we had began to, and as you know, we were getting to get tired of going to the LA, to the police commission. Yep. Brethren get shooting it and shooting that, you know, unending. Albert uh, Hudson was on, this, on the, um, on the police commission. Yeah. And so we jammed him one day, you know, I had to duck for about five years. <laughs> so he would be on the same <laughs> So, so we said, well, okay, let's, if, if this is a long struggle, where, where do we, what, what can we do within our context? What can our contribution? Yeah. yeah. And that led to reading Christ and intellectual question of culture. That in this historical struggle, there still has to be a fight over culture and putting these stories out here so young people can pick them up, older people. And also what a festival does is this, it shows the distributor that there's an audience for these films because that's the way, that's the, that's the politics of it, which led us to that. That's how we got to this because we thought that it needs to have, a, we have a complicated narrative. As a result of the slave trade and colonization, we're spread all over the planet. And as a result, and it's been 400 years. So what happens, because we spread all over the planet, a lot of black folks get caught up with where they're at. And what I mean by that, if you're from Lagos, a lot of people in Lagos think, well, is there anything else other than Lagos? I mean, Lagos has got 17 million people. I don't know if you know that or not. Lagos is as big as Southern California. Think of this, Southern California, 99% black. So they think they're on top. Or you, you come to... LA, the rappers, the same thing. The rappers <laughs> are convinced that they the hippest, the toughest, because they're all over the planet, right? Now, they don't understand they're only on the planet because they're in the most powerful nation. They think it's them, because all black folks got the same soul. It's different, but we all got it. We all can do it. We can all make well, it happen. you're seeing that now with Afrobeats. Exactly. Like now that Perfect. is that, the world capital. All everywhere. Yeah. And so the rappers are convinced that they the end all and be all. But we understood coming from Cheyenne, we were not all <laughs> in the be all. We understood where we was at, you know. Mm -hmm. So we began to understand that culture and the struggle around questions, these stories get told and so forth and so on. Then we realized that we've got to expose black folks to what's happening in Compton on a subtle, more sophisticated level and what's happening in Lagos, what's happening in Haiti. Because if you don't know everybody's story and how that connects, then you out the game. That's one of the so, things that I enjoy yeah. about the Pan-African Film Festival. I go as often as possible. I think right. I've gone pretty much, I would say nearly every year. So Me I too. Was, if I wasn't um, working, that'd be going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Since I first learned about exactly. it. Exactly. And that was one of the key things that I learned was that there were many of the struggles and it's were very common, especially right. places where 
there was a the, the slave trade. Right. And like, for example, um, learning even the concepts around your hair, beauty standards. Right. It really blew my mind. Like even things around colorism. Right. And how that existed it all throughout the diaspora. Exactly. Um, even in Africa. Right. right? In fact, um, this year you have a film called I Find that's going to be in your festival. Oh, uh, yeah. And that's about uh, skin lightening in right. Sierra Leone. Oh, it's hard. Um, it's hard. Yeah. And so so there are, there are actually a lot that you can learn when you go to the, the, the film right. festival because you learn about what's happening all over the world that's actually a common struggle or a common some of the common assets that you have such as music such as exactly. the things that we create right exactly. such as even our business skills and our business minds um i mean it's it's one of the most beautiful experiences i've ever had um and one of in fact when I went the, my first not my first time but one of the times i had went i got to sit next to marla gibbs yes and it was she was so <laughs> sweet i went to see slavery by another name oh yeah and um, and that was when I had first learned about how the slave trade um, transitioned right into the prison mm -hmm, industry. Mm -hmm. And um, me and uh, my friend uh, Lucy, shout out to her, we were we got there late, <laughs> mm -hmm. and not late, but it was not it was it was basically all the seats were almost full. And we went to go sit down, and Marla Gibbs was like, "There's a seat next to me. Come sit next to me, baby." And I you sat see? right next to her. You, you wouldn't like you don't know what you're gonna right. what can exactly. happen if you just go to the Pan African Film Festival. Well, that's the whole point, you know. And we and it was sort of coming out of Cheyenne, we got exposed to that with the Air Force and so forth and so on. So we we came open, you know, to all Black folks' experiences. Uh, one of our major films that affected my life was uh, Raising the Sun with Sidney Poitier and uh, the whole dialogue between him being this brother trying to do something with his life and watching white folks cut all these big deals and his daughter, his, his sister's trying to go to school and is in love with this brother from the continent and so forth and so on. We're watching that in Cheyenne and Poitier jumped and they played Baba Olatunji's drums, The Passion, in that film. Great drummer from Nigeria. And uh, he jumped up on the, on, the, on, the, on the table and stood the spear and brought the hole. Mm -hmm. So we this, 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 we were interested, you know, we were, we were open, we were curious, we knew that we had to hear all those different stories. Mm -hmm. That's how that all... So Pan African Film Festival, one of the most important uh, cultural events in the city of Los Angeles. Uh, you know, we got the Oscars here, uh, right. you know, we got the Grammys, we all have all of that. Uh, I don't think anything comes close in terms of cultural significance, mm -hmm. particularly uh, sort of the, the culture as a form of struggle. Right. Right. Uh, nothing approaches mm -hmm. the Pan-African Film Festival. So tell us the particulars. When is it this year? What's the big film? Who are the sponsors? Uh, what's really going on? Because we, we're getting to time, so I want to oh, make sure we're getting, we're okay. getting all in. We're yeah. at time, actually. Uh, <laughs> yeah. February, we're, what we're doing is... The February 9th through February 20th. February 9th through the 20th. And uh, we're going to have, again, 100 major, 100 films, 100 painters, artists, clothes, designers from all over the planet. Because uh, we feel that nobody has a monopoly on information and truth. Yeah. So you got to get the truth from all over the planet and just kind of expose folks to that. Uh, we we um, we've got some uh, open night film, which is an incredible incredible film that um, a brother by the name of Joseph Bon I got to get his name exactly correct Boulanger Chevalier de Saint George. This brother is a brother from the 19th century that is one of the greatest musicians, one of the greatest swordsmen when they wrote concertos and so forth and so on. 
and uh, blew everybody's mind, and people could not figure out exactly how he did this. He took the African spirit that we have in us, in this, 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 and he put that in 18th century classical music. And they tried to say he was the black Mozart, but Mozart was a kid, but they were saying at that time, Mozart as a child was free from preconception, so it said like Mozart, but it really wasn't. It was coming from the spirit. He comes, his, his, his mother came out of Senegal, as, as enslaved, enslaved, and then went to um, down in the islands, uh, St. Lucia or Martinique, Martinique. There's a film about him? That's an opening night film. Okay. And it's a major, 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 major film because everything we went through, he went through. Yeah. Which yeah. is fabulous. And it's, it's That's powerful. And almost no one knows right. in our context, almost no one knows about this. And we character. and we wanted yeah, we wanted to do that. We also are gonna have this lady here, uh, Lisa Terry, who used to be with the Upstown, Uptown String Quartet. She just got through performing at uh, doing the orchestra with the Temptations down to Amerson. Uh that's when uh, Max Roach introduced them. She's one of the great violinists, and she's going to play his music with Mayungo and some other people for about 20 minutes before the oh, film. Oh, so live music too. Live music with this oh, lady, wow. okay. Doing the violin, yeah. so you can see the whole the whole thing. Again, trying to find stories that need to be told, and so forth and so on. And we have the same it's the same issues, same struggles in terms of showcasing, trying to convince people to you know to uh, support us and so forth. Not the masses support us, trying to get. Uh, Black musicians, black filmmakers, you know, they, they as brother says, they think that uh, Sundance's ice is hotter, colder than our ice, you know. Oh, white ice is colder. So, yeah, that white, yeah. so what happens a lot of times is that, uh, and we always tell young filmmakers, look, put your, put your uh, film in Sundance in February and then come on down to us in January if you don't get over it because there's never been an independent film until recently picked up at Sundance. That's a myth. No black films have been picked up. Even Hustle and Flow, it was already picked up, and John then put it in Sundance to ride on the mm. on the on the coattail of that. And people don't know, but the Pan African Film Festival is an Oscar qualifying. Right, we're Oscar qualifying, right? Thanks to to the conscious young people who work inside this, we got that done for us, you know. And it's a and it's the for people who also, if you want to come to the event, it's at. The Crenshaw Mall at the movie theater. I keep saying Maddie Johnson. I don't even know. Maddie right. Johnson. Maddie, we're, we're, yeah. we're calling it Maddie Johnson. Right, Maddie it's, Johnson. It's forever the Maddie Johnson right. theater. Right. Yeah. There's Plenty films of parking, there. Free art, parking. Free parking. Uh, and the arts in the, in the theater, in the mall. Live music. Right. Yeah. And it's just a vibe. Even if you... It's an art festival yeah. in the mall. Right. And you that's just, one of the things we wanted to do. We wanted to create a space. We started out at Sunset 5. We wanted to get to a black space. And Magic was able to make that. Him and Ken Lombard because there's so little black space for black folks to enjoy themselves and experience and hang out where we just enjoy. Um, an example of that is uh, Mayor Bradley. Bradley used to come down to the festival all the time hmm. in the afternoon. And you could tell just to be around some black folks that was something conscious, something interesting. So and a lot, of, a lot of you'd be surprised, but Bradley used to always show up and come down and so forth and so on. I'm gonna tell Mayor Bass, maybe she'll keep, pick up right. the- Right, <laughs> yeah, tell her, we, we send this stuff to her, Jackie Hamilton, come yeah. on, cause she, she always supported the San Antonio. But that's, that's what we're doing. Um, this is our 30th year, 31st year. We just finished our, our 30th anniversary. Uh, we plan to do it for a couple more years, then we're gonna retire and go back, go to Africa. Oh, wow. Um, you know, we can pass it on to somebody else. 
But uh, that's, that's, if you want to stand at one place, at one place, and see the whole black world come through, you can do it at the Pan-African Film Festival. Right here in the heart of the community. Yeah. All right, now we got to go to the lightning round. This is the round. Yes. That you just get, you take a tick, you answer okay. the questions. We're trying to make keep a list. Oh, that's here. why. That's why you were saying. Yeah, you were trying to prepare you. Uh, cool. We were trying to keep a list of places, things, activities uh, in the community uh, that represent our story and represent the culture. So we ask our guests, uh, who are oftentimes cultural leaders like yourself, to just answer, and we, you know, we'll keep a list. So, your favorite song that represents Black LA. Um, from LA or just the song that represents that, that LA? That makes you feel LA. Probably, God, what's my favorite song? I got a lot of favorite songs. <laughs> okay, the rhythm blues, probably Johnny Guitar Watson, Ain't That a Bitch. Yeah, that's, 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 that's an LA record for yeah, sure. Yeah, you, you, you catch, that's, that's you catch, an LA you catch, record. You catch Johnny's energy. Yeah. Because he, he, came, he came out here from Texas. You know, we knew Johnny. Yeah. And, um, that called to me that that, yeah, that no, reflects that's, uh, LA. Yeah. Dr. Dre is uh, the modernization of Johnny Guitar. That's right. Yeah, Johnny, so. Johnny. Excellent. All right, that wasn't quite lightning, but we're getting it going. <laughs> All right, now I'm gonna ask you to pick from your loved ones your favorite filmmaker from Black LA. Wow, um, from LA because mm -hmm. there's some filmmakers that are here. Yeah, somebody who was actually raised in LA yeah. and so forth and so on. Um. I like um, a Sister the Daughter of the Dust. When she uh, was in yes, L.A. Yes, yes, I think she is in L.A. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I can't think of her name. Julie Dash. Julie Dash, Dash. Yeah, yeah. Julie, Julie caught it. The spirit, the energy. Uh, yeah. All right. And your favorite film about black L.A.? God. Um, probably so John did a film. John, what film? He did a film about L.A. Oh, 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 oh. Charles Burnett, uh, Sleep With Anger. Oh, yeah, that's... Charles, Sleep With Anger. Sleep With Anger. Sleep With Anger, that's... Uh, he caught L.A. That, yeah. What happened, black folks cooking and having a good time, and, and madness shows up at the door. And in the, in the, in the uh, guys with Danny plays the bad man. Yeah, Glover's in that movie. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I got a finalist. Yeah, that, yeah, got Sleep an With Oscar, Anger. Uh, yeah, nomination, nomination. Yeah. yeah, I got an Oscar nomination. Oh, yeah. 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 Because it's, it's, Marquise, you were smiling really hard. So. Yeah, yeah, no, I yeah, was like, that yeah, was, he pulled yeah. that one out, boy. Yeah, <laughs> sleep, sleep With Anger. I thought he was going to have to say Boys in the Hood for it. Yeah, I was about to say Babu. Come on now. No, Sleep With Anger, Sleep With Anger, because it's... It's a story of Mary Alice, some great actors are there, and it, came, it comes from L.A. He, mm -hmm. What it is, he says that uh, he heard these stories in his mother's house, because black folks still coming out of Texas and not in eastern Mississippi coming out here, and so they would discuss this. And it's a story of, we all have this experience that you're doing where you got your house out here in East L.A., you got your house over here in Baldwin Hills, you're working hard, you know, and so, Black folks, one, but there's always madness. There's always madness because of the nature of, of our oppression. And one door, one day, madness knocks on the door, and the guy's Danny plays the madman, who comes. He gets a thrill out of messing with you. The white folks didn't mess with him. And uh, Mary Ellis, if you remember the, the film, Mary Ellis says, "Since you got here, there's all kind of craziness going on." You know. Who are you, right? And Danny was incredible. Danny said, well, look, I'll tell you what. If white folks have, have destroyed half of you, what the f*** you think is left? Charles caught that, listened to people's stories, 
coming out here from Texas and Alabama as little kids sit there and listen and made that film. Mm. I yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like the, it's like yeah. uh, it, it kind of. I was reminded of the film recently, coincidentally. Yeah. You know, Octavia Spencer has it's, that quote that's going around that she said she's from Alabama and she says I experienced more racism in LA than I ever experienced in Alabama. It kind of speaks to those stories. That's right. Where the the racism is not necessarily less; it's just different. Different. And and the ways in which it's different can be particularly unsettling. Right. And Charles grew up here. He yeah. really is from L.A., just like John John Singleton. Mm-hmm. So they really, really know the soul and the spirit. Also, he was a very sensitive brother that paid. It. He was running track and hanging out with you know Scotty and them brothers from the Beat Goes On and. So he you knew have, all that. You, you have know. all the information. Yes. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm telling you. No, I, no. We, we have to go, but you yeah, have gotta wrap no, up, all but, the information. But it, <laughs> you know everything. Just, are you well, doing? Are you have you are you doing a book? We're doing a book, and we're doing also uh, tapes. Oh, all our stuff is good. all our stuff is at the Schomburg in New York. Uh, okay. So we're giving okay. all the stuff there. But yeah, but it's it's not. Let me say this: it's not so much. Well, I'll just tell you what a friend of mine told me. He he escaped, went to Canada. We all refused to fight in Vietnam, and um, he gets Wait, up there. You were there. a war resistor too. Yeah, we oh all yeah. Hold on. But let me t- so anyway. So what he said, brother, we got him up to Canada, and um, he was um, working. And so his son, who's grown up in Canada, comes in, and they see all these books in the house. We told him you got information, right? And so. They said, wow, they picked up the book, it's a thousand pages. They, you know, like, said, you got all some. And I said, wait, wait a minute, hold on, brother, listen. He said, we didn't read the book, and I didn't get the information for the thousand pages that I read a thousand page book. So we're trying to figure out how to get free. <laughs> so we read a bunch of stuff and got a bunch of information trying to understand our condition, our situation. So right. it appears that way, but it's it's all trying to understand how I came to be in, in, in Wyoming. And I'll close on this. There's a scalp in Cheyenne, Wyoming, in the, in the museum of an Indian scalp to this day in Cheyenne. And we used to walk past that and go look at that and try to understand that. And uh, it's still on, on display. And of course, they told us that the Indians scalped, but the Indians didn't start scalping until they scalped the Indians because you had this, in order to get your money, you had to show the scalps that you did. With a little bit of red skin. That's exactly. Red skins. Now, exactly. This happened in Cheyenne at the Frontier Days, which is the oldest rodeo in the country. We stand on the corner, us about four or five black kids, like 55, 56, and they said, Red Cloud is coming, Red Cloud's son is coming. One of the great chiefs that fought with, against custard and the whole thing, so you must see Red Cloud, right? He was coming down the street, looked like old man, you know, if he, maybe he was 70, 80, Red Cloud must be 150. And he saw us, black kids, standing on the corner. He turned his horse, and turned, came over to us, and had his horse kneel down to us, and looked at us. And he looked like, and we all, because I asked people later on, years later, if they saw, felt the same way. He said, look at me, don't let them do that to you, what they did to me. And they turn them down. Mm. That's what we, that's, mm. that's the real story. Let's Get Free, Pan-African Film Festival, February yes, 9th sir. through the 20th. At, the website uh, is Baldwin everything. Hills Crenshaw Mall. All uh, the schedules are there. All the all the, uh, the trailers are there. You can find everything there. www.paff.org. Right. Got everything in the show notes for you. Excellent. All right. Thank you, everybody. Hey, thank you. 
Thank you for listening to MHD Off the Record. And special thank you to Felicia, the poetess Morris of Morris Media Studios in Lamert Park. For more information, please visit MHDCD8.com and follow at MHDCD8 on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Don't forget to rate us five stars, subscribe, and share with a friend.